The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. And I would invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 John. If you don't know where 2 John is, it is a very hidden treasure. Little, small, it's along with 3 John, the smallest books in the New Testament, if not in the entire Bible. But I want to tell you that small things hidden away come with a powerful punch. It was uh, early fall of 2014 that uh, we moved my then 86-year-old mom into an assisted living. And uh, I went through all of her stuff. And a lot of the stuff in my mom's house uh, to her was treasure. But to me, it was just like, uh, we got to find a place to land this. You probably know that, right? But there was one treasure that really caught my eye. Hidden away, tucked away in her filing cabinet was a handwritten multi-page letter that she had written to one of her grandchildren, one of her grandsons. And, and I read through that, and, and she was pleading with this grandson to walk in the truth, to walk with Christ, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was a great joy, though at her funeral a few months later, that particular grandson was still not walking in the truth. He was not walking in love, as we're going to see in 2 John. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that today that grandson is walking in truth and in love. And I believe that God answered the prayers of his godly grandmother and her plea in a handwritten letter. She loved him enough to implore him to walk in the truth. And that is not unlike what we're going to read, 13 verses from an elder, an apostle named John. Isn't it interesting that he was formerly known as a son of thunder? But every time you go through the Gospel of John, he keeps calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, he was so amazed at Jesus the Nazarene and wondered how he could love a sinner like, like John. And John is picking up his pen, if you will, and he's writing a note, a God-breathed note, inspired by the Holy Spirit, either to a lady and her kids, or, my personal conviction is he's writing to a church using a metaphor, elect lady and her children. There's scholarship on both sides of that interpretation in verse 1, but I want to just read it. And I want you to think about your own life as you read John, as you look over his shoulder, as he pins this word, as the apostles have been martyred, perhaps. The book of Acts has been completed, the late first century. And John doesn't probably have a lot longer left in the tank. He knows his time to, go with Christ, to be with Christ is soon. So let's read it together and think about the burden of walking in the truth. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we, perhaps John and the other apostles, the pastors, have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word for God's people. So the point, and it's going to be up on the screen that I want us to to really see this morning, that I want you to, to get with me this morning, is that the, the point that, that the Holy Spirit has for redemption through these verses is this. Walking in truth and love protects you from counterfeit Christianity. Walking in truth and love protects you from counterfeit Christianity. If your future self-redemption could talk to your current self, in three months, three years, 30 years, he would say, walk in truth and love. By the way, that's the first point. The first sub-point in verses 1 to 6, if you just want to get to the essence of 2 John is this. You can put it in your notes. Walk in truth and love. Now John the elder is concerned He's joyful, verse 4. He says, I'm hearing that some of your children, some of the church members, continue to walk in the truth. And I don't think that means that he necessarily believes that the other members are not walking in the truth. I think what it means is that he wants to come and see them face to face to verify that the entire church continues to sing of the deity and the humanity and the substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection of Christ and that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through Scripture alone. He wants to get that verification. And so, as almost a grandpa figure, great template here for our elders, for our small group leaders, for our parents, for our 
grandparents today, for someone who's mentoring someone younger in the faith, is you and I have no greater joy than when our successor, our protege, the people we're discipling, are walking in truth and love. That's the heart of it. That's the heart of it. And he just can't get away from truth because in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, he keeps using truth, 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 five times in four verses. Think about truth for a minute. The idea in verse 1 is that the truth of the gospel unites us. Listen, what unites us this morning redemption is not the kind of vehicle we drove up in or whether we like this sport or this hobby or we listen to this favorite podcast politically. That's not what unites us. What brings us together from such varied backgrounds, ethnicities, ages, perspectives is the truth that Christ stood in our place. That's what unites us. It's the truth that unites all of us who know Christ. Not only does it unite us, but in verse 2, the truth indwells us. Now, how is that true? Because truth is objective. It's not looking into your, getting in touch with your inner child. It's not subjective. It's not mystical. Truth is about historical facts, about a historical figure who died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And then after he rose from the dead, he was seen by many eyewitnesses over 40 days. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's objective truth. But you see, he promised he would send his Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came. And Romans 8 9 says that as many as are led by the Spirit of Christ, they are the sons of Christ. You have the Spirit of God who placed you into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Whether you're male or female, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, this color or this color, it doesn't matter. The Spirit of God indwells you and He lives the life of Christ through you. He is the Spirit of truth. Verse 3 the truth blesses us. Look at the greeting. Now, a typical, typical secular greeting at that time would have been greeting. And the Christians put it like this. Grace and peace be unto you. That might be a good one, right? During the break, greet one another. Grace and peace, brother, sister. But John puts another word in there. Look at it. He says, grace, what's the next word? Mercy and peace will be with us. And I like to think of it this way. If I was over with redemption kids, and I think very simply, I would just say grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. We've been singing about His grace. But I would say that mercy is God withholds from us what we do deserve. Isn't that amazing? Have you, have you stopped and thought about it, that all of the times that you failed to love one another, that you failed to do your ministry for the glory of God, that you were seeking an audience with man rather than the 
glory of God as we were reminded of being a vertical church this morning that Jesus died for that. He didn't judge you for that because Christ took the hit for you on the cross. What a mind-blowing thing that the truth blesses us not only with grace and not only with mercy, but with peace. Peace reminds us that we not only have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have peace one with another. You can have somebody here that irritates you to no end. Somebody in your own house, somebody in your small group. So we're different, right? We step on each other's toes. We irk each other. But the reality is, is that the good news of the truth of Christ and His gospel enables us to be at peace with one another because of Christ. And then the truth controls us. In verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now you see, the truth of the gospel is something that gripped my heart at the age of five as I sat in Lincoln Street Baptist Church and heard missionaries from Costa Rica share that Christ died to provide a way that my sin could be forgiven as a free gift of God's grace. And as a five-year-old, I put my trust in Christ as my Savior. And so at that moment, I moved into the house of gospel truth. But you know what I've discovered at age 56? I've never moved on from that. You see, the gospel is a very big house. It has a lot of bedrooms. It has a lot of room to grow, but we never move beyond it. You never move on from it. It's just a gigantic house. Because we learn more about the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the more of His substitutionary atonement, the more of His bodily resurrection, the more that He's praying for us at the right hand of the Father, even while we sit here this morning. You just never move on from the gospel of truth. And so when John, or one of your pastors, learns that you're walking in the truth, they get excited. And I can tell you, Marcy and I being here at Redemption for four months, it has been so refreshing to see a body that is walking in the truth. You see, the best deterrent from the deceiver, from the Antichrist, from the false teacher or the false prophet, is to continue to take one step at a time in the truth. Look at verses 5 and 6. Because notice, the point is this, walk in truth and what? In love. Can I look at me for a second? Got your ears on? All truth and no love, you dry up. All love and no truth, you flare up. All truth and all love, we grow up. You see, if truth is isolated from love, we can become sterile, we can become dry. But if love gets unhitched from truth, we can just accept any new teaching, latest idea that floats across our path. Think about it this way. If you're on a road trip, you need a good map, Probably for most of us, that's on our smartphone, some GPS, some Google map. You need it to be reliable. That's like the truth. 
Because if you don't have a reliable roadmap, you're going to end up going in the wrong direction. But there's another thing that you need if you're going to get very far. You need fuel in the tank. That's love. You need the roadmap truth, but you need love, the fuel in the tank. And I think for some of us, if we err on the side of truth without love, it starts feeling a little bit like we're putting the car in neutral and we're having to get out and push the car. You ever feel that way? It's like it just... Ugh. Now we do have to fight through periods when we just ain't feeling it, right? We all go through that. But truth detached from love, we dry up. Love detached from truth, we flare up. But truth and love together, we grow up. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, first question you got to ask is, isn't the command to love one another? Hasn't that been like around forever? You can go all the way back to the Old Testament and find it. So what we have to get is that John, the elder, writing this letter, is pointing back to John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus is saying, a new commandment I give unto you, to love one another. What's new about it? Because in the Old Testament, they were commanded to love one another. But when God broke through the concrete slab that separated eternity and glory from our sin and our suffering and our brokenness, and He inserted Himself in the person of His Son as a babe in Bethlehem, He entered into our suffering and He showed us agape love, self-sacrificing love, the one who had no place to lay His head. The one who came unto his own, the Jews, but the, his own did not receive him. They handed him off to the Jews. And the Jews and the Romans collaborated and they killed him. They crucified the Lord of glory. You see, then we see love in full stereo sound, don't we? It, it's, it's Christ who, as we learned in Philippians 2 emptied himself, took upon humanity, and died the death of the cross, taking the very form of a servant. And then, to get even better, the Spirit of the living God came to live inside of you when you repented of your dead works and you trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope of heaven. That moment the Spirit of God shed abroad in your heart the love of God. Now, I, I don't know if you're a bit like me, but sometimes, maybe after Easter, I get a bit arid and dry, just kind of going through the motions. And so I think the Apostle Paul over in Ephesians chapter 3, he's verses 18 and 19, as Paul, who expounded on the love of God, he's praying that the believers in Ephesus 
would have the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. You know how we keep from drying up and flaring up, but instead we grow up? We go deeper into the gospel house we already live. We, we say, Lord, show us at redemption how wide and deep is the love of Christ for us. We go from glory to glory looking into the face of Christ through a cross, through an empty tomb. And you know that command to love one another in the context of walking in the truth may look like this. It might look like tapping your brother or sister in your small group on the shoulder and say, you know, that author that you're starting to get infatuated with, of that book, you need to maybe be like the Bereans and go back and say, is that author walking in the truth? Is he preaching a different Jesus, a different gospel? If, uh, if you're in my care group and you sin and God providentially brings that to my attention, then I'll lovingly come and confront you. If you have a need then I'm going to come and help meet that need. I was so, Marcy and I were so overwhelmed when so many of you during the season that we had 10 to 14 days of quarantine after we were diagnosed with COVID, you brought meal after meal and laid it at our doorstep and ran away. <laughs> you walked away. <laughs> you know, that's loving one another. If you're grieving, if I love you and you're grieving, then I'm going to comfort you. If you're ignorant, I'm going to instruct you. If you're disobedient, I'm going to correct you. And, and that is all a part of how love and obedience in verses 5 and 6 work together like Siamese twins. You can't really get love without obedience, but oh my goodness, don't you dare try to obey without knowing God's love in Christ. Because it'll start feeling like you're pushing that car without any fuel in the tank. I like the way... Uh, John Bunyan put it in a poem. Listen to this four-line poem. He says, as he's thinking about the fact that God's commands are not burdensome and the new covenant and the grace and the gospel, he says, run, John, run, the law commands. The Old Testament is full of commands, isn't it? But the law, he says, gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So really the best way to not be taken in by deceivers or antichrist or false views about Christ is to just keep walking in truth and love. Are you... With me in that? Can we do that together? Yes. Just walking those steps. How much more basic can we get than just walking in the next step? Conducting ourselves in truth and in love. Now he goes on in verses 7 to 13 and he says, As we walk in truth and love, you can put this in your notes. I think this captures the rest of the, of the letter. He says, Watch out for counterfeit Christianity. 
Any of you know what the skull and crossbones are? They're the international symbol for poison. And apparently you can go and see an explanation is this. This symbol means something is poison. Poison can make you or your friends very sick. You should always be careful to not play with anything with this symbol on it. I mean, a first grader can get that. And what he does in verses 7, especially through verse 11, is he says, watch out. Because everybody that talks about Jesus, that's teaching about Jesus, that's preaching about Jesus, aren't really your brothers or your sisters in Christ. So be careful. Be careful. And if that's true in the first century, oh my goodness, in the 21st century with social media, and everything imaginable that we have access to, we need to be forevermore careful of this. Look at verse 7. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. I mean, think about this. Just that phrase. If Jesus said in John 17, 18, that He's going to send His disciples out in the world and they're going to turn their world upside down in 30 years. From Jerusalem to Rome, doesn't it make sense that Satan's going to have copycats that are going to imitate Jesus' disciples, but instead of pointing people to the treasure we've been singing about in Christ, they move him away, us away from Christ. And you know, the thing about deceivers and antichrist is, is they don't wear a sign that says, this is the way to destruction. Come with me and be deceived. I mean, the key to being a deceiver is that nobody knows you're a deceiver. Listen to me. Satan's greatest ambassadors are not pimps or politicians or power brokers, but pastors who distort the gospel of truth and misrepresent the Jesus of truth. And that's why he says in verse 8, watch out, watch yourselves. So that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. I think what he's saying here is watch out so that you don't lose out. And maybe he's saying watch out so that we don't lose out. What does he mean by that? Well, Elder John, Apostle John, and all of his associates had no greater joy than to hear that their children are walking in the truth. They're spiritual children. And so when they get to heaven, they want to be able to say, you are our joy, our crown in the presence of Christ. But if those whom they mentored and taught move away from the hope of the gospel, they move out of the house of the gospel mansion onto another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel, then John is fearful that he won't get his reward. So it couldn't work either way. Now, this is not teaching that you can lose your salvation. Amen to that? If you know Christ, you will not lose out. But it is hinting at what is often called the perseverance of the saints. That once you move into that gospel house by faith alone and Christ alone, by grace alone, you may struggle and you may have questions and you may be even this morning wrestling with some of these things regarding the humanity of Christ or the deity of Christ. That's all good and normal and fine 
If you go to God's Word and your brothers and sisters and work that out with His truth. But at the end of the day, you don't let go of the confession of Christ as Lord. There's a hint of this sort of in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. As John writes in that letter, he says, They, that is the false teachers, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. I mean, those are sobering words, are they not? Now, if you stay in the truth and you marry that to love, you're in good shape. Just keep walking in the truth and love. And, but be on your guard. Watch out for counterfeit Christianity. A couple of characteristics that John calls our attention to. I want to point these out. In verse 9 he says, Everyone who goes on ahead, notice that, and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, doesn't remain in the teaching of Christ. They don't stay in the gospel mansion that, that we've moved into by faith in Christ. It says they do not have God. Verse 7 goes on and it says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So two, two characteristics regarding false teachers. You say, man, how do I know? Who am I watching out for? When I'm on the internet and I'm doing all these Christian blogs, checking out this latest Christian author or whatever, and he's gaining a following, she's gaining a following, what do I look at? Look at what they teach regarding the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus. That's a great place to start. You see, the basic test of professing Christians is his or her view of the person of Christ. 1 John 2.21-23 indicates who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I love 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men and women, the man Christ Jesus. So you see, there's the deity of Christ, and there's the humanity that he took on in Bethlehem, the babe in Bethlehem. Truly God, forever, at a point in time he became truly man without ceasing to be truly God. Doesn't that give you brain freeze? <laughs> I mean, if, if you encountered God in the Old Testament, you couldn't look at him face to face. And these disciples, for three years, they're around God incarnate. It's amazing that they're not just absolutely blinded. Because the second person of the Godhead is dwelling in some 5 foot 10 inch, 170 pound Jewish male for 33 years or so. And you see these teachers denied that the man Jesus of Nazareth and the eternal Son were one and the same person possessing two perfect natures, human 
and divine. And they were the forerunners of all cults today, of most cults today. Because most cults deviate at the person of Christ or at the work of Christ or both. And it, it you know, they don't wear that on their t-shirt, do they? If you go to their website and you just do a quick, it's like, oh, man, they must be my brother in Jesus. I remember a, a, uh, a guy named Brian Chapel. He's a pastor in the Midwest, I believe. And uh, he, every morning on his commute to work, he would listen to this five-minute devotional from a local uh, religious leader. And he's like, man, this guy's good. I wish everybody heard this. He would teach on morality and on, you know, being a good husband, a good wife, good shepherd of your home. It's like, this is awesome. And then one day he learned that that man was of the church of Jesus Christ. Does that sound good so far? Of the Latter-day Saints. What do the Mormons teach about Jesus? That he's a created being, not creator of all creation, who existed from eternity to eternity as God. But it sounds, something sounds so close. Remember Dick Lucas, a pastor, as he was teaching pastors and elders, he had a chalkboard behind him and he drew this line on the chalkboard. He drew this straight line with a piece of white chalk. And he heard it screech across. And he looked at the pastors and he pleaded with them. And, you, and I'll plead with the elders here, with the small group leaders here, with parents and grandparents here today. He said, the thing that you have to be careful of is that you stay on this line. If you go above the line when it comes to interpreting truth, you're going to end up in a ditch. And if you go below the line in terms of the truth that was once delivered to the saints and the Word of God, you end up in another ditch. And here's the reality. False teachers go above and below the chalk line of truth. And this is pretty, pretty crazy. In verse 9, he says, Everyone who goes on ahead and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ, what's the next four words? Does not have God. They may dress like a Christian. They may sing like a Christian. They may be the nicest neighbor you have. But it says they do not have God. Think about Christian scientists. In one hand, they carry the King James Bible. In the other hand, they carry the interpretation of that King James Bible by Mary Baker Eddy. You see, Hinduism says that God has incarnated Himself on multiple occasions. Christianity says that the incarnation was a unique and unrepeatable event. We both can't be right. You see, truth, which isn't popular today, it's something objective, something rational, something fixed. But just know that truth demands that we both can't be right. Jews say that Jesus is not the Messiah, most of them. Christianity says that He is the Messiah. We both can't be right. Mormonism says that Jesus Christ is a created being, no matter how they tend to disguise that on their website or at your front door. Christianity says that Jesus Christ is the Creator, not the created being, and that He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. We both can't be right. You see, this is not an issue of differing on 
you know, how you feel about this or that social issue as Christians. This is at the very heart of how we get into the gospel house. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is kurios. He is Lord. You will be saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us. And you never move on from that. And this isn't a matter of John as an old man, you know, having to sit down and write, you know, kind of a watch out letter because he had a bad pizza the night before and his stomach was sour. It's not that. He writes these things because there can be no greater joy than to know that his children walk in truth and parents and grandparents. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. This just goes on and on and on. Because you see, the concern of the elder is that his time of departure is about to be done. And he's pleading with this house church or the sister in Christ, the elect lady. And he's saying, please watch out. Don't walk out of the gospel house that you've already moved into. The humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ. Because he's saying to advance beyond Christ to a different Jesus, to a Jesus plus or minus something is not progress, it is apostasy. You see, this isn't a peripheral issue. This is the very heart. It's kind of at the issue like 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we're dead in our sins. Why did we have Easter last week? Why did we meet and celebrate this morning? These are truths, guys, that we stake in the ground because it's been once recorded for us in Holy Scripture, God's Word. Then he gets into verse 10 and 11. He says, If anyone comes to you and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You have to understand that at that time, all churches met in homes. And what was happening is there were itinerant preachers and teachers and prophets moving from place to place. And so... Hospitality was a big thing, as it is today. The word hospitality is more than just inviting your circle of close friends over for dinner. It literally means a welcomer of strangers. And so you had people that were traveling from house church to house church, maybe in Asia Minor, maybe around Ephesus perhaps. And we're going to learn next Sunday, God willing, that there is a time and a place to welcome our brothers into our home because it wasn't safe in the inn. There was a lot of temptation. It wasn't a good place. And so there's a kind of hospitality, a welcoming of strangers that we're going to learn next week we absolutely want to be engaging in. But there's a wrong kind of hospitality. Let me even frame it this way. Closer to the meaning and significance of verse 10 and 11 is a story that I'll tell from sitting down some years ago in El Paso with a leader of a Christian organization who had a ministry in public high schools. And he said in this particular high school, he confessed that there were an admixture of Christians and Mormons that weekly attended the study. I was like, that's great. 
But then he said this, he said, and the Mormons are allowed to lead and teach devotionals in the study. I think by implication that could be, or I should say stronger, would be a violation of verses 10 and 11. You would find at Cade and Blair and Eric, before they allow anybody to teach here or in a small group, they want to vet that person to make sure they have a correct view of the deity of Christ and of the humanity of Christ. That they aren't peddling another Jesus, another spirit, another gospel. So how does that play out? Does that mean that you should just not have anybody who uses the name of Jesus when they stub their toe into your house for dinner? Absolutely not. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and all the way through Scripture, you and I are to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light, a salt of the earth. And we are to rub shoulders with people that don't know Christ, that need Christ, who may yet believe in Christ. Welcome them in our home. Feed them dinner. Love on them. And when God opens that door, show them the hope that is found in Jesus. What does it mean when uh, they ring your doorbell? And you know that that team is a cult. I'll leave that for you to talk about in your small group this week. But let me say this. Verse 10 and 11 imply that those who profess to come in the name of Jesus and teach about the truth when they are deceiving you and pointing you beyond the truth is very dangerous and you are not to offer them the same kind of hospitality, the same kind of welcome mat that you would someone who is preaching the same Jesus. So you can witness to them. I would encourage you to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. It would be a good passage to look at, hoping that God would open their eyes to the truth. Let me leave you with this verse. If you want to go back to it, it's in Hebrews chapter 3. I, I just... I was so concerned about the tone of the message today because Marcy and I have been so overwhelmed with encouragement here. Just, we see a church that's walking in truth and in love. And you know, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 and 14, we see a warning. And so I want you to take the warning with you but in light of that joy that we feel and know that you are walking in the truth and you are walking in love. But it's still a good, a good word for all of us. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And then I like this. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You know what happens when you take a log and remove it from the fire? It starts to go out, doesn't it? 
So don't take your log away from the fire, not only of God's word, but of being with God's people. What does he say? Exhort one another how many times? Every day with your text, with your phone calls, with your small groups, with your sit-downs. And I love that. I love the way he closes this brief letter. He says, I've got more to say to you, verse 12, but I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk how? Face to face. So that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister Greedy, what a, what a way to end. Isn't that beautiful? We're, we're sitting side by side this morning, but in a few minutes we're going to be face to face. What a great opportunity just to encourage one another. Just say, brother, sister, keep walking in the truth. How can I love on you today? The love of Christ compels me to do that. Amen?